Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity to see how tall they are and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. That's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends, loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. So my idea in the joke was, hey... Um, if we're talking about allyship and everybody has privilege, gay men have privilege in the fact that they're men Mm -hmm. and in the world, they have privilege over women. So I'm going to stand up for your rights to get married. I want to stand up for your rights to love and have everything you deserve. Can you stand up for my safety? Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This week's guest is Ida Rodriguez, whose debut hour special, Fighting Words, premiered on HBO Max earlier this year. I I, I love this conversation. I, I feel like on this podcast, especially these days with, you know, everything, I, I'm searching for meaning. Like, why are we doing this? Laughing and telling jokes. This, this interview helped set me straight as... Ida has an uncommon sense of purpose. So I, I I guess be warned that I do get caught up in her drive as a, a self-proclaimed revolutionary to to do something, to change minds with her comedy. And we will start, as we do, with a joke. This is from Fighting Words. So here is Ida Rodriguez. Um, I will say that, you know, liberals who pride themselves in being liberals can also be problematic. And I think as a woman of color, it is my job to point that out. Um, You know, woke people, where the woke people at? Y'all still admit that shit in public? That shit is corny as fuck. (laughs) Remember woke people walking around with the woke as fuck shirts on? I know my pronouns. I was homeless and uh, one of the woke people was tweeting me and told me, we don't say homeless, we say unhoused. (laughs) I was like, bitch, did you tweet that from the comfort of your own home? (laughs) She was like, home is where the heart is. I was like, the heart ain't under a fucking bridge. (laughs) I hate woke people, woke people. (laughs) The woke people are always getting beat up by the sleep people. You notice this? They're always crying. And I don't want to be woke. I'm a revolutionary. I'm tired of people beating us and us praying for them. They're always, oh, words hurt. I'm 
like, so do uppercuts, bitch. Learn how to block. <laughs> the fake-ass woke people in Los Angeles where I live were throwing up those Black Lives Matter signs during the marches, and they only put up them signs so that nobody would break their windows. They were like, they're marching up our street, Lucille, throw the sign up, hurry up, hurry up. <laughs> Not the rainbow, that's next month. Not the rainbow. <laughs> Y'all fake asses. I am here with Ida Rodriguez. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Um, so before we get to the specific joke, I, I want to take a step back and talk about how you approached this special as a whole. How, how did you okay. think about it? How did you go about a- attacking it? So it, was, it, it evolved, right? Because when I first got the special, it was 2019 and it was before the world was on fire. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking I'm going to go do my comedy special in New York, I'm gonna do it at uh, you know at one at Lehman College is one of the places. I wanted to do it at the Bronx Zoo. I wanted mm. to do something different. And then COVID hits, and the approach to the special has to change because the special still has to get done, mm-hmm. right? It's not like we're not doing the special anymore. It's like now we got to figure out how to do the special. And so I had to rethink the whole thing because yeah. you know. Zoom wasn't working for me. I'm not a good Zoom comic. I discovered mm-hmm. <laughs> during the pandemic that I'm, I'm probably not, that's not my calling with, where I was on Zooms where some people were killing it. And yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, I'm getting heckled by a dog. <laughs> so I had to re sit down and rethink this whole thing. And then um, I decided that I wanted to do a special and I wanted to go to Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic because uh, they were devastated by COVID and those places. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I, not only am I going to bring laughter there, but I could also bring jobs. And so anyway, I, I decided that I was going to do that. And um, I I had to think long and hard about what this was going to be, because I knew mm-hmm. I wanted to go to the Dominican Republic. I wanted to meet my father. And I decided to do it all on camera. But I wanted to because I wanted to show people the process that goes into making jokes Mm -hmm. for comedians like certain and not certainly not all comedians, but my process, because I do talk about my my life and my family. But I wanted people to see how we mine our jokes, how we, you know, how we do that. And it just started taking on another shape and form. And I thought about uh, Don't Shoot the Messenger because I love Chris Rock. I think Mm -hmm. Chris Rock is brilliant. And I was just like, I like the idea of doing jokes in the three places. I didn't necessarily wanted to do want to do it exactly that way where I do the same exact set. And yeah, and you, you cut back you, and forth, right? Yeah. But I didn't want to do that. But I did want to. I wanted people to see the experience of what we go through when mm-hmm. we do comedy, when we go to different places, and we have to adjust to just what's out there. And so I sat down and I said, I, I, I want to do something different and. I started writing to that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I had heard you talk, I guess it must have been in 2019, when you're thinking about the special, you you said you'd write out, so you'd, you'd start just sort of thinking about what the special is as a whole, um, yeah, opposed to, yeah, yeah, and you said like, oh, maybe it'll be about cancel culture, but like this special, you don't say, at least you don't say the words cancel culture, so I... I, I On purpose. Yeah, so can you talk about how the sort of idea or the sort of big picture idea evolved so yeah it be, i um 
I didn't use the word, the term cancel culture on purpose because I feel like it's being weaponized and yeah. people use it for like these ridiculous arguments. Um, but I did, I, when I first started, I was like so angry about uh, being attacked because my feelings were hurt when people were like saying, you know, you're problematic because you did this or we have a problem with this, this, or you didn't mention this or you didn't talk about mm -hmm. this. And it just becomes so draining. But then I sat down and I was like, I sat down and I said, what do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? Like, mm -hmm. and I do that. I did it with They Ready. I, I want this to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what are the things I want to talk about? And I knew that I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about the family stuff and cultural stuff, but I also wanted to talk about relationship stuff because I never talk about that in, mm -hmm. really in my sets. And then th I couldn't ignore the social stuff. And what I've noticed in comedy specials is that they become categorized and it's like, oh, th this person is a social uh, observational comic. Mm -hmm. This person talks about their life. And I don't fit in any of those lanes. I do. I talk about it all. And yeah. I talk about social issues with respect to my personal life. So I just decided to to break it up into chunks and figure out how to tell a story through it, through all of it, and just sit down and say, you know, I, I don't have the... I don't have the luxury of just being an observational comic. You know, it's the elephant in the room is that I'm a, a, a brown woman that, you know, has certain experiences and people look at me like, what, when are you going to talk about your life? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just happens because yeah. I've always done it. But it's just like one of the luxuries that, uh, you know, being just a regular white man in America is that you can just go on stage and say, I hate airport food and there's a whole bunch of people who will relate to you um but the the ignoring that the reality of what it is to walk through about the planet being who i am is just i can't ignore that because it's just an experience that is not afforded that luxury of just being like it's i was just watching something on yesterday and i was like damn white people can just be in life <laughs> without their race or you know just being a topic is when they're around other people, but like it always comes up that I'm yeah. Puerto Rican and Dominican, you know? So I just wanted to be, I wanted to holistically tell a story and, and just run through what it is to live my life, going through life, seeing the way, seeing mm -hmm. the world, the way I see it and just focusing, trying to hit as many things as I can without it becoming too clunky. Sure. So, um, this joke, which is about wokeness, how did this sort of evolve out of that thinking? You know, um, I think that one of the things that I really wanted to explore was I love Johnny Carson. Johnny mm -hmm. Carson was my uh, my one of my introductions to comedy when I was a kid. And one thing that I really enjoyed late night uh, about late night was that everybody was fair game. Mm. And you didn't know who belonged to what political party because they were doing, you know, they were doing these jobs. And certainly we've evolved since then. And a lot of that stuff um, was rooted in being problematic. So I, I get it. Yeah. But I think that uh, one thing that I wanted to uh, say is that, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of liberal people who really think that because they claim to be liberal or mm. they belong to the right party, that they are you know, righteous in their behavior. And I think that racism is something that affects all people, not just people of color, black people, but white people as well are infected with this sickness. 
And just because you think that that racism is wrong doesn't mean that you don't participate mm. in practices and behaviors that are toxic and harmful to people of color and Black people in this country. And so I wanted to make sure that I pointed out that because I think that it was just something that I wanted to point out because it was starting to bother me how so many people were just gliding into the liberal plane and saying, oh, I'm not like that because I'm, I'm a liberal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other thing was that I wanted to explore nuance because two things can happen at the same time or be true at the same time. And so with regards to white women, I was like, you know, white women do fight. And even though they they have a vested interest because they are also victimized by patriarchy and white supremacy and oppression, um, they also get to enjoy the privilege of being able to step into the the realm of being the oppressor. And so I wanted to point out that, you know, while we do have a lot of women who are problematic and and employ very problematic views and attitudes towards people of color and black people, that white men who are in power are the are the true, mm-hmm. you know, villains and that we scapegoat to white women and really just put all this blame on the Karens while the conditions of our people were not changing because the people are in power who are in power are still in power. Yeah. You mentioned that there's a, it became very in vogue for white male comedians to do jokes about how white women are the problem. White men turned on white women. I'm a comedian. You seen all the comics talking shit about white, white men are clever. White men colonized everybody on the planet, including white women. They were like, no bitch, you sit in the back of the bus too. One white woman ruined the barbecue and then she became the problem. I'm like, well played white men. That's chess, not checkers. White women have been standing on the front line for abortion forever. We don't even know that that is an act of allyship. They're like, yo, these white men are evil and we ain't making no more of them. (laughs) They tried to warn us. Yeah, no. And so these are some of the same guys that will say things to me like, Oh, you got to be a person of color to 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 be on a comedy list or to get a mm. TV show or you got to be a black person to be a showrunner now. And then you you know, you you hear this and then you go on television, you go on your TV and you put up your TV shows and still the majority of the TV shows are white people. The majority of the showrunners are still white people. The majority of the showrunners are still men. And it's like just because you got to see a few people of color get a little bit of the a piece of the biscuit now now everybody's mm-hmm. you know it's just it it got to the point where it's like nah that's not that's not true yeah um as we go we're about to go through the joke do you i assume you write on stage or you start with just a general idea and then how what does writing on stage look like for you do you go up with notes do you go up with just a vague idea and you fully talk it out what does what does that look like in terms for you Sometimes I do go up with notes. Bullet points is pretty much more of the better way to describe how I go on stage. Um, I do have bullet points, things that I want to really hit on. Um, When I say I write on stage, a lot of these jokes will pop off from my crowd work. Mm. A lot of times the audience will say something that will trigger something for me. And then here you go. And now I'm talking about uh, woke culture. Um, and yeah, for me writing on stage is, it's like that. And even I'll record a set 
and I'll listen to myself and my ad libs and the things that are happening organically on stage. And then I'll take that recording and I'll t- go somewhere. And that's when I'll write to it. Yeah. So so I want to talk through joke in order, though. I assume it wasn't written that way. It's just sort of easier to remember where we are. Mm-hmm. So the joke opens with sort of the mission statement, which is liberals who pride themselves on being liberal can also be problematic. And then you say, mm-hmm. I think as a woman of color, it's my job to point that out. And that phrasing, which is that it's that it's your job. I, I want to talk to you about how you think about your responsibility as a comedian. Like what when you think of your ideal role, what is the balance you try to achieve between entertaining and educating uh, mm-hmm. fostering social change uplifting community you know representing something but also making people laugh how do you think of like whatever the pie graph or whatever of all those things are so uh i feel that way uh when i say i feel like it's my responsibility to point that out i mean mine as ida rodriguez mm-hmm. not because i'm a comedian yeah but because of the type of comedian that i've decided that i want to be and i've chosen to be um i would think that you know, I, I I got an opportunity to live in this intersection of comedy and social and political commentary because mm-hmm. I do, uh, I am a guest host on the Young Turks and I, I am invited to Politicon and invited to speak in these panels and on this, um, in these, pla- on these platforms. So I decided that, you know, I'm going to talk about it. And because I said, I, I said that I'm a challenge the status quo and I'm going to talk about these things and I'm going to say this, then let's get into it. You know, Mm -hmm. don't just dance around it. I feel like it's my responsibility to say it because I think that a lot of people of color are, are, and black people that are in this business are afraid to call people out. They're like, don't piss the white women Mm -hmm. who are executives off. Oh, you don't want to piss the white guys off. And I feel like um, anybody who really is, uh, who really cares and has the best interests uh, of people of color and black people at heart, are not they're not going to be offended. Mm. And if they are, then those are not my people anyway. I don't want to be in business with those people because those people don't care about my people and me. Yeah. So I, when I feel like it's my responsibility, that's not as a comedian. That's just the comedian that I've chosen to mm-hmm. be. Um, you know, you, you talked about your 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 background in political commentary. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened and how that came about? You know, I think that um, ever since I started doing comedy, I've been observing what's happening in this country and in the world socially and politically, and I've been talking about it. I'm not a political comic. Yeah. You know, I'm Dennis Miller is a political comic, right? And so it's just, uh, it bothers me that comedians have to be categorized. And like I said earlier, for me, it's like, this affects my world too. It affects my life too. I, the way I see it uh, is something interesting that I want to talk about and that I don't necessarily have to be a political comic. But then they, because I'm talking about these things, they invite me to be in spaces that are typically political. Um, I, I got invited to go speak at uh, the Multicultural Correspondents Dinner in Washington, D.C. And I think that my... I got a standing ovation and the Mm -hmm. room was filled with people who are Republicans or Democrats or whatever. They're all in there and they all stood and the, and people took note of that. So then I started getting invited by political people, including the young Turks to come and do like put just commentary from a comedic perspective. But it's just always been something that 
I uh, I'm interested in, you know, and a lot of people are that are not political people. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and so then now I'm on these panels and then it gets a little out of hand because now people are coming to me and I'm like, I'm not a journalist. I'm definitely not. I'm not a pundit. I'm not a correspondent. I'm not an expert. I'm just talking about how I see things. Mm. And because people are so tired of the BS, it's refreshing because they're hearing somebody that feels the way that they feel talking about the world and they want to hear more of it because they're like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, you know, this is not about Republicans or de- Democrats. This is about how do I make my community better for me? Yeah. And then eventually now I'm on a panel on Politicon and wondering why I'm there. But, you know, Ben Glebe is my friend. So I'm on there because Ben is my friend. And then I'm like, oh, but then I I start thinking what I have to what I feel matters, too. And I don't I don't come from the perspective of being an expert. I'm an expert in my life and someone who's been on, you know, public assistance, someone who's um, struggled with health issues and been a you know at the mercy of our healthcare system and I, i'm like oh, i should be able to say something too i mean george carlin did yeah and nobody told him to go home i mean i'm sure people did but they didn't <laughs> yeah, have sure, yeah. yeah so did that experience do do the experiences um influence each other do or do they ultimately come from the same place you know it I'll, I'll, i've watched some of your appearances on on the young turks and it you know, mm-hmm. it's a similar person, but obviously you're making fewer jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, but does it feel like the same thing? Did doing it open up your brain in a certain way? Like, how did how did it influence sort of what your comedy is? Um, yes, it did start to influence me because I started to be more conscious about the things that I was saying mm. because th- more people were listening. And also to be able to sh- shine a light on certain things that would not normally get the light through the regular or the 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 conventional means now a comedian is bringing to light that um you know the the DA in Florida with George Zimmerman was problematic and maybe should go or I'm mm-hmm. talking about you know things about like people need heat because it it's been really bad and covid is going to be really horrible on people in 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 cold climates and whatever it is. I just was like, oh, I have an opportunity to talk about things that other people are not going to talk about. And if through a joke, I think sometimes you have the opportunity to resonate more Mm. because it makes people think through laughter, but it's disarming because it's not indicting, you know? Yeah. I'm still working on that. Yeah. So the joke continues and you do something. I I find this part really really funny which is you get people to cheer if they're woke and then people cheer and then you make fun of them for doing it mm-hmm. um which is a really funny thing to as a comedian to do to because you know they'll cheer it's like it's it's yeah. it's talk about developing that and what it's like even just performing it because i imagine it's really satisfying to tr- trick the audience a little bit you know because it proves my point about the performative mm-hmm. aspect of being woke right that people are proud of it but they're just proud to say that they're woke. But then if you go and inspect the lives of those people to see what they're actually doing to make the world a better place, if they're really walking the talk, nine times out of 10, they're not. They just got the t-shirt. They got Black Lives Matter in there. And I'm not just talking about white people. I'm mm-hmm. talking about people of color, black people as well. It's like, if you look at the bios and it's like proud, you know, these are my pronouns. This is... And then you look in their real lives and they're 
you know, they moved into a building where black people got kicked out and now their their favorite restaurant is a vegan restaurant and they're chilling and living these lives and they're not willing to put down their privilege to cre- create equity for other people. Yeah. So when you say woke and then you see all these people say, yeah, I'm woke. They, they thought they were going to get a high five for it. And I'm like, you guys are corny. Corny as fuck. This is, look at look at this. Why, why do you like to, I mean, how would I describe it? There, there's something really sort of confrontational or it, it creates a certain sort of, it, it breaks the sort of, it almost is there creates a certain sort of chaos and sort of how the order is supposed to, mm-hmm. what you expect from a comedy show, which is that everyone's on the same side. And you're mm-hmm. very early in your special making fun of the audience, like a large part of the audience as a whole. What do you like about mm-hmm. that style, creating that environment for your comedy to live in? That no one is safe because everybody feels like they can take they can take refuge in someone who's like, you know, they know that this person is liberal and they're like across the board liberal and they're going to talk about um, being liberal and mm-hmm. what liberal people do. I'm not a liberal. I'm not a, a conservative. Um, when I'm on stage, I'm a comedian that's observing liberals and conservatives. And so I think that you know, in creating a real environment where people are reacting authentically for me, that's why I didn't have it edited in a way where, mm-hmm. you know, you could go in and edit, you could put in the laugh track, you can hide the audience, you can shift and, put, you know, cut from both specials and say, I'm going to get the best laughs here. Best. I, I thought it was important to let people see that some people didn't react to the jokes mm-hmm. the way you wanted them to. That That's something that I was you know, that I'm okay with. I, I didn't want laugh tracks on my mm-hmm. on my special. I was like, thank God for the the editor that I have. Michael Ruder was really on my side and just really giving people this authentic experience because it that was the point. The point was that you can't say anything because people get all weird. Yeah. And this is the weirdness is is what's causing a really bad comedy experience. Mm. Because you should be able to laugh at things that are uncomfortable and inappropriate, so long as it's not being harmful, you yeah. know. And so I, I was like, I, I've always been like that. I've always, there's always been this daredevil in me, if you will, that goes out on this play on this stage and says, "All right, let's see what happens." Mm-hmm. Because for me. Um, that's the only way that we're having an honest conversation. Otherwise, you're just preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. If you just want to get a bunch of people in your audience that are going to high five and salute you and stand up for everything you say, that's cool. It's, if that's the experience you need. But for me, I don't feel like I grow as a comic that yeah. way. It, uh, I had heard you, you'd open for Paul Mooney, and it feels like a very mm-hmm. Paul Mooney-esque philosophy. Can you talk a little bit about how that influenced your perspective on these things? It validated it because um, when I opened for him, I was already this, mm-hmm. you know, like I just wasn't as seasoned. And, you know, I'm still halfway through, not even halfway through where I need to go. But what I what I saw about Paul Mooney was him being his authentic self. And it's like the people at the club told me every time he comes, the same thing happens. He sells out and then people start to walk out, but they still come. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, these people like abuse, you know, mm-hmm. like some people like, like to feel it and some people don't. 
And and I don't know if anybody, I mean, if you know who Paul Mooney is, you know that this is who Paul Mooney has been. So you don't, I don't think anybody thinks, oh, he's had this major change in his yeah, life where yeah. now, you know, now he's talking about, you know, <laughs> dogs and sun and sunflowers. You know that this is who he is. Yeah, so, yeah. um, you know, he told me, he was like, lean into who you are. Don't be afraid. Go deeper. And I was like, oh, man, I already think I'm already doing too much. Mm-hmm. But he was like, no. Um, and he's like, I used to tell Richard, just go deeper, you know, go, go. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, if he told Richard, like, I'm nobody, <laughs> let me go a little deeper. It was very uh, validating. And it was also validating when he told me to just be who I was. Cause I was, I dressed up when I opened mm-hmm. for him and he was like, Keep doing you. Don't don't ever change. This is who you are. They're gonna let you gonna walk on stage. They think they're gonna think you're gonna talk about. He was like, they're gonna think you're gonna talk about giving head. They're gonna think you're gonna go on stage and you're gonna talk about getting banged and and who you want to marry. And then boom, you punch him in the neck. He was like, that's what you do, and mm-hmm. that's who you are, and that's who you you need to be. Where did that that punching punching them in the neckness come from? Like what before you're a comedian. Did you have that part of yourself? Was that a part that you didn't have the opportunity to mm-hmm. voice? You know, ha- that it, it, it is hard for a lot of comedians to get to that point because it's they're the audience. They paid to be there. You're scared if they yeah. go away. It's so funny because I remember him saying, you know, I don't perceive it as punching it, mm-hmm. them in the throat. I, I just see it as having an honest conversation with the audience where it's not it's a safe space. You know, like we're having this conversation and this exchange. Mm-hmm. And I think the the biggest issue that I have with people sometimes is that like I grew up in um I grew up in the in the inner city of Miami. And I grew up in an apartment building with that my grandmother managed, but I lived with my mother and my stepfather, and my grandmother lived across the street. But I lived in an impoverished neighborhood, grew up on public assistance and grew up very poor. I shared a room with my three siblings. Like that was my life. So, you know, you have a conversation with somebody and they're like, well, at least you had your mom Mm. and you slept on a bed. And I'm like, so now my experience is not valid because it doesn't look like yours. Sure enough, yours was worse because sometimes you slept outside but does me sleeping in a pissy bed with three other kids become ideal? Mm-hmm. It's ideal to you, but to me it's hell. And I just feel like, you know, not being able to have conversations that are uncomfortable has become part of the unhealthy environment that we live in now. And if we don't have the uncomfortable conversations, mm-hmm. we won't move forward, right? Because we're not unpacking. Like we say, let's unpack this. But unpacking usually means let's have a conversation in a way that's comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. And there will be no mass exodus. You know, like groups of people are not jumping on planes or boats and going back to where they originated from. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. So for me, it's like, how do we have a conversation to talk about this stuff that's actually going to lead to some sort of real solution? And I know that I'm not the, I, I don't have that complex where I think that savior complex where I think I can go save the world, but I would like to influence that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fascinating because 
the way you talk about it is that it's essentially you're like, we need to have uncomfortable conversations. So as a result, I'm going to make the, even this setting uncomfortable for all of us. Like yeah. it's much if like without that joke where you essentially call out audience members, the set could have been, probably was easier. But you're like yeah. to have to sh- to model to do what a comedian can do, which is sort of like create a s- context and a, s- a safe space for these you're like we're gonna be dis uncomfortable together and then we're going to work through it um it, it it's really interesting to then sort of to actually do it to not just sort of be uncomfortable by saying things maybe people don't like but to actually create that aura and um have everyone sit in it yeah and you know it's funny i used to say that i, w- I would always say it's, it's tough right now but we're gonna get through it guys because <laughs> The truth of it is, is that I love people and I love the audience and I love what I do and I love that they show up for me. And I, it comes from a place of love because I think that a lot of people are in comedy and in entertainment are have these narcissistic qualities that keeps them oblivious to what reality is. Mm. And for me, I stay connected to it because in my family, I'm the only one in my, you know, that makes... Uh, money for doing something that I love to do. Everybody else has to go do a job to take care of their family. And I walk I walk around with that everywhere I go. I don't ever want to forget that. I don't ever want to be disconnected from that. Um, and so I think that when I approach the audience, they know that they can feel that I'm coming from this place where it's not, I'm not trying to shit on the audience. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to like, I don't want to, I don't want all the white women to go home feeling like they've been owned. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's just not, that. that's not where I come from. It just, yeah. it's just really like, I want to be able to have a conversation that's healthy. And a healthy conversation means sometimes you're going to hear something you don't want to hear. Yeah. So the crux of the joke then is the sort of your perspective on the a homeless first unhoused moment. Um, if, uh-huh. if you can... Uh, just sort of to, to uh, on background, can you, if you if you mind, sh- don't mind sharing, can you explain sort of your experience with being is, is homeless the word you prefer? Do you care one with? Oh no, it, it doesn't matter. My point was yeah, that yeah. the person who took see the thing is when people tweet me stuff, I go look at their profiles. Yeah, and then I go look at their their Instagram page. I read their tweets. I see where they come from, and then I to get a greater understanding at where this is coming from. So when I have somebody sending me a message telling me that I'm problematic because I'm using the term homeless, mm-hmm. when I, in in fact, used to be unhoused, if that's what you want to hear, it really, it just, it's the performative stuff, right? Yeah. It's so easy to get, you know, I do work uh, to, to raise money for people who are unhoused. I have a, a coffee book that was sent to me by an organization in LA because I, I show up and I don't I don't put it on Instagram because I think it's humiliating to do that to people. But all the stuff that I do for other people, I don't I don't take pride in putting that online. Mm. It just undoes it for me. So for me, it's like, you know, I am actually doing work to help c- improve the conditions. I was I lived in I went from my truck to a Best Western with my kids. And we were like swapping from one Best Western to the other because the homeless shelters would give you uh, vouchers. And Best Western is one of the places that will provide shelter for people who are unhoused, that have children that go to school. But in the toughest time of my life, 
You think I would care the what the language that someone used and how they categorize me more than it mattered to me that they would actually help me? Mm. And it's so condescending to the people who are living those experiences. And I think that there's this elitism sometimes in people who have a higher education because now they're they are in, you know when you're in school you're exploring you learn so much about yourself then you step out into the world taking this fresh take on how you're going to change the world and you want to interact with people which I totally respect right and admire but don't don't scold me about my experience yeah. about how I whatever I'm calling it and completely completely ignore the fact that I I was in pain because I couldn't provide shelter for my my two children. And that right there is where where I'm like this is where this is problematic. Yeah. Because now we're having these debates and arguments about the terminology that people are using and we're not even addressing the real issue and now there are still, you know, I live in LA. These unhoused people are about to face a, a really bad cold winter, no food, no place to go, and you on Twitter arguing about what we're going to call them. Yeah. It is, it is somewhat like, at least the, what the joke conveys is this feeling that because knowing that, that knowing the right word is doing doing something. Absolutely. And, and if anything, it is just the entry point into doing whatever someone might do. Yeah. Yeah, but there's this um, there's this attitude, this elite attitude with people who are now woke and have discovered where now it's about um, it feels like Lord of the Flies or, you know, it feels like let's go beat this person up. This person mm -hmm. said this. This person is homophobic. This person said this about, you know, specifically when it comes to people of color, black people. I come from my uncle was Puerto Rican, Afro Latino man that was murdered. Um, beat to death for being gay mm -hmm. and for being a queer man in Miami, Florida. Um, we were raised with a taught a lot of homophobic ideas because of where we come from, right? We were we were colonized by Catholics, right? That was what happened in our country, and a lot of these homophobic properties come from our colonization, which lives in our DNA, and we are trying to rid of because people who are queer. And people of color belong to us. They belong to our community and we can't erase that. And I, I believe in that heavily. But if we don't have a conversation about how toxic this homophobia is and where it comes from, and sometimes it comes out in a comedy or comes out in a TV show, it's in our DNA and our subconscious mind because it's the way that we were socialized. We were, you know, black men and, and men that were slaves were raped by the, the slave masters. Like there's a fear that comes that's real, that lives inside of us. And, it, and it's sprinkled throughout Latin America, Brazil, Africa, uh, you know, the United States, Canada. And so when we when we hear people saying things that we don't like, that we we believe and and are, it can be harmful to the communities that they're talking about. We don't ever want to explore what that is. We just take pride in taking those people down. And for me, it's like if you're really trying to make it better, don't you want to find out why Tracy Morgan and Kevin Hart are scared of of their kids being gay? Where does that come from? Not to excuse that saying something homophobic is cool or being hateful. I, my 
The love of my life was murdered. Mm. My uncle was my father. He raised me. He was everything to me. His, his his baptism from church because he was trying to pray the gay away certificate. It sits on my desk and I look at it every day. So I understand that his life mattered. And because of that, I, I'm willing to have the conversation mm. about why where these attitudes come from that led to his death. Then to say, don't say that, you know what, you're in trouble and we never talk about it because we don't heal from that. It, it feels like the it's it, that capture sort of what I think is one of the overarching themes of a lot of your comedy, which is stop focusing on individual people and focus on systems, focus on facts. Where is is that is it hard to do? I, I know that seems like a silly question, but I feel like yeah. so much of comedy is built on sort of this you know, a personal experience about a personal person. Is it, is it difficult? Is it hard to get audiences to see in that way? So because they're so trained to thinking about individuals. Yeah, you know, it is hard. And that's why some of us have taken a mission to say, you know, it's so much easier to attack the LGBTQ community, right? It's mm -hmm. easier to attack the 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 gay people or the queer people or whatever um then it is to say why is this taking priority over black people in this mm. country and brown people in this country you know it's easier to say that um because you're not going to have consequences from the mm. people they're not going to make sure you never get a special. They're not going to make sure you don't get money. They're not going to make sure that you don't get a chance mm -hmm. to work again. Um, and so you get you see people get on Twitter and they get on Instagram and they just start taking other people down. But why aren't you attacking the big corporations mm -hmm. that benefit from this? Because you know there are consequences. It's easier to take down somebody who looks like you, sounds like you, because you also have believed that we don't, we're not, we don't have the same value. So of course it, it's easier to just jump on the person in your neighborhood than it is to go to Beverly Hills because you've been programmed to believe that the person in Beverly Hills is worth more than you, mm. and you have subconsciously accepted that as a belief. And that's why I don't participate in that or try not to, because. Um, I, I think that our issue in this country is toxic capitalism, not capitalism, toxic capitalism, because I have to stipulate because then they'll say, you're trying to turn this into Cuba. <laughs> no, I, I'm just trying to make this a place where human beings can live a decent life outside of Bezos and, yeah. you know, Gates and all of that. And so uh, I just think it's we we and if you ever notice, like the people who get killed are the ones that attack capitalism. You know, because, you know, like uh, when Martin Luther King started talking about capitalism being a problem is when he got killed. Like, you know, like the the chairman, Fred Hampton, is the same thing. Like, so when you think you think you're doing something because you this actress says something that was a problem and you're going to get rid of her. It's not creating more space for the uh, people of color or it just gets rid of that person because we don't have that power. Yeah. Like we don't. So and you can get rid of, get rid of that. Doesn't even get rid of the person. It does not. <laughs> they continue to work. They just wait until the the storm is over, and then they're like, "All right, let's go. You can go back." You know, mm -hmm. and that's 
And that's what I'm just trying to point out. Like sometimes it's like, what are we doing? It just feels like a uh, kill piggy, kill piggy, kill piggy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's it's that's why I said it's that social media is like the the pain projection playground because a lot of times you get to exercise your pain in the name of activism and nobody's going to question it. Yeah. Because of course black lives matter. So if you're saying black lives matter, but you're just mad because your father left you. Mm. And now we're we're we think you're really passionate about black lives, but you just taking this person down cuz they said something uh they said something stupid. We're not really t- we're not really t- listening to you really don't care about black lives. You just really know that this is a place where you can exercise your pain. Mm-hmm. And that's not everybody, you know, like it's not. But I, I certainly do think that a lot of people do that. Yeah. So um, the next part of the joke is about, you know, the idea woke people are always getting beat up by the sleep people or yeah. uh, they're always like words hurt, but so do uppercuts. C- can you talk about that that perspective? What are you trying to get across? So, you know, it's figurative language, but people, of course, take it literally Mm -hmm. and they think, oh, she wants people to fight. But I do want people to fight. I think that uh, one of the things that you you saw, if we talk about liberals versus conservatives, you talk about the Democrats versus the Republicans, though, a lot of those Republican Republicans, they went, they were like, so united for what they believed in, even if they were wrong, mm. even if there was a lie, we could see it. And they were like, yeah, no, nah. everybody saw that it was a blue balloon. And they're like, nope, it was a red balloon. They stuck together because what they their goal was far more important than the way they went about to get it. And then you see liberal people or the woke people or people who are like fighting for whatever it is, justice and equality, getting beat up mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. You know, like the that that uh that kid who shot up the black church in the South, they asked the black people, do you forgive him? On a day he shot those people. And I'm like, and they said yes. And they know they knew who to ask. Cause I would have been like, hell no, I don't forgive him. I want to see him die too. Let him go. We can't say that because that's problematic. Like, oh my God, that's not an evolved take. You you at, at some point we have to put down the formalities, we have to put down the pleasantries, and we gotta fight for what we believe in because look at what's happening to us. Look who died during COVID the most. Yeah. Look look at what's happening to people in our communities. Things are not changing. And we're still letting these liberal people tell us, oh, but words hurt. Like we need to just be more careful with how let's make sure we don't use the wrong word. You know what? Bitch, get out my way. Get out of my way. You are just as much as much of a problem for me as that uh KKK member over mm-hmm. there saying that he hates me. You know, a bit later in, in I think it's in this this chunk of the special you say you admire people who fight for themselves because you didn't always fight for yourself you know what does it mean what does it mean to fight well that means i didn't defend myself not just not just physically but also verbally and and you know we didn't have we didn't have a hashtag for bullies when i was a kid (laughs) in my neighborhood and i'm not bitter about the fact that they have it now and i'm not bitter about that we call a bully a bully and we advocate for children because I'm all for that. Mm. But we didn't have that. So we had to survive. And I was not one of those people 
that fought for myself because I had worthiness issues because my Mm -hmm. father wasn't there and I didn't think I was enough to fight for. So I didn't fight for myself. And when I would see my friends, that would be like somebody hit them and they hit them back. I I would marvel at that because I was like, you should really hit that girl back for hitting her. Like, you know, like and I'm just taking the licks. Yeah. So I think um, now we fast forward and. You know, I look at people who do fight for themselves and I'm like, good for you. Good for you. Yeah. So the, so the joke culminates with the, the Black Lives Matter sign section. I, I assume this is based on a specific thing that you saw. Can you talk about how this happened mm-hmm. and then what it was like to talk about it on stage? <laughs> it was uh, going to the improv to perform. I drive through a neighborhood that was affected by the uprisings mm-hmm. as a result of the George Floyd um lynching and so the uh the funny thing is that all of a sudden you saw all these businesses with black lives matter signs Mm. up on their windows and i was like yeah i've been in these stores and they followed me around (laughs) they haven't treated me well like i've been in this situation where i've been like you know so i um I was like, it's performative. A lot of people are just putting up Black Lives The Black Lives Matter sign, like my my friend Mark Brazil said, has become the new pink ribbon. <laughs> and people wear them proudly because they are like, uh, I, I think breast cancer is wrong. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, hey, when was the last time you donated? And they're like, hey, I, I gave $5 so I could get this pink. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's yeah. just like, where, where do... If Black Lives Matter, then you're voting for a superintendent. That's going to be fair to the black kids in your community, that the sheriff is a good sheriff so that, you know, we don't have these policing issues that we're struggling with. Then you if Black Lives Matter to you, then you are investing and creating, making sure that they're, they got good books in, yeah. in, you know, south of Wilshire in L.A., if you will. That's what what, what Black Lives Matter to mm-hmm. me is. I want to make sure that black women are not, are not being mistreated when they go to the hospital. You know, those are the things that say black lives matter, not a sign on your window. Yeah. And I and I think people are on a cycle now of of saying I don't want I don't want the problems with the Twitter patrol. I don't want the problems with the people. So just throw up the sign, all right? And then no stop Asian hate and you know, LGBT put a rainbow up there. Like it's it's become now it's a, this robotic thing and it was just gross yeah there's something about how you describe it even though you don't talk about this in the joke it, it made me think of and it's specifically an la thing of we're going to put up this sign but we're also going to make sure that we don't allow things to pass that allow essentially low-income housing allow black people to move in like, yes again you don't say that in the joke but that is the exact neighborhood i picture are the and it's a and that's an la thing of like no high-rises no low-income housing is that in there when you picture the the couple? Is that the type of people you imagine? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you feel that. You know, I had someone uh, tell me, that's why I say I don't belong to any of these groups. Yeah. I had this woman who's a friend of my friend have this petition and she showed it to me about how they didn't want a, a shelter built in their neighborhood because it would make the value of their properties go down. And meanwhile... People, human beings are living on the street, underneath the freeway in the neighborhood. Yeah. And I'm. she's like, this is horrible for us because it, it just lowers the value of our property. I say, and people 
shitting on the sidewalk don't mm -hmm. make it make sense. Yeah. You know, like you honestly feel like this is a problem. We don't want a shelter. We don't want that symbolism in our neighborhood. Right. And this is a person who has a Black Lives Matter sign in her window. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there like, not only don't you don't care about black people, you don't care about veterans. You don't care about women. You don't care about children because that's who's on your neighborhood sidewalk underneath the freeway. You just want to flush them out. You don't want to even see them. Because you don't want to acknowledge their humanity. And, you know, it's just like those are the people that I'm talking about. They they perform and they appear to be on our team so much. But when it comes to, ooh, when it comes to real life and execution, they're not on our team at all. Because when you're talking to a woman who used to be unhoused <laughs> and you're telling me like, how irritated you are by this because now you just see what you see mm -hmm. and you think, oh, I met her through my friend. My friend is an actor. She's She's got to be in the in crowd because she's over here. And it's like, you're talking about my people. Those mm -hmm. people on the street, those are my people. Mm. Yeah, I think that what you what you do, what, what the distinction you're making, and I think is, it's like the difference between people being in their neighborhood unhoused and people living in their neighborhood is that they're saying, these are not my neighbors. Like yeah. if they're living here. They can live here as people without homes, but if we give them homes here, then, then they are my people. And yeah. that is the distinction of the point of view where you are saying they are my people regardless of where they are. Yeah. And if you care about human beings um, and you never know, like you don't know what's in that facility and yeah. what potential lives there that will eventually become Hillary Swank is an Oscar winning actor that lived in her car, right? Like, mm -hmm. I believe that it was Hillary Swank, but it's like, you never know what's what's in there. And and, and even though you shouldn't even care about that, like yeah. it shouldn't, it could be 10 McDonald's workers in there. They're human beings. Mm. Not that there's anything wrong with being a McDonald's worker because there certainly is not, but it's just like, it doesn't matter who's in there, but it's just like that, that idea that you really care about the community so long as it doesn't impact your little habitat is very problematic and very common. Yeah. And a lot of these woke people are in the neighborhoods in Harlem. They're, they are they are in Brooklyn. They're in uh, Alapata and Miami, which they call, you know, uh, Wynwood, which they call the art district now. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have any of our bodegas, you know, getting rid of all the good food in the neighborhood that has seasoning on it. <laughs> we'll be right back with Ida Rodriguez talking about what she hopes her comedy can do. Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? Or what was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you'd learn that that's the science-y term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? 
Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Now back to Ida Rodriguez, where she discusses the burden and opportunity of representation. What do you hope for a joke like this? What do you hope comedy can do? What do you hope your comedy do? What What do you hope for something like this? I hope that people who hear my comedy employ some empathy mm. and think about how their actions affect other people. I hope that people engage in conversations that are productive and healthy that can push culture forward, you know? I hope that people laugh and feel joy. I hope to normalize experiences like mine to make people feel like they're okay. And just because they grew up poor or they grew up without their father or that they've been unhoused or that they've been discriminated against, that they know that they're not alone. Mm Because a lot of times comedians aspire to ascend into celebrity for their own reasons and their own pain. And and then they start to employ the same practices against the average man and woman and non-binary person that was a uh, practice on them. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, I love George Carlin for many reasons, but one of them was that he maintained a distance, a healthy distance from celebrity culture that... Uh, upheld his celebrity Mm -hmm. because a lot of times these people you know they want to be cool they want to be in the in crowd they want to be a kardashian if you will Mm -hmm. they really do deep down inside and so for me it's like i want people who are not gonna ever be that to know that they're still okay and that i see them if nobody else is that does and that i'm them yeah you know, I still I'm still worrying about how I'm gonna pay my bills in March. I'm not I, I haven't made it to the point where I'm like, oh, you know, it's all good for me. I live in an apartment. Mm. You know, I'm still help my mommy pay her bills, you know, like I I have a a lot of responsibility for my village and I don't ever take any of them for granted. They don't they don't get paid a decent wage. Mm. You know, you've talked about, there's something you, you, you'll you sometimes say in interviews I find really interesting, which is you, you talk about using your story to relieve this, the, the shame and guilt of the audience, mm-hmm. um, especially around difficult subjects. Can you can you talk about how do you try to do that and how you hope comedy is able to do that? I mean, you know, when I did They, uh, they Ready, I had uh, quite a few emails from women who had been sexually assaulted and molested, mm-hmm. who understood my joke. Um, this Me Too shit is real, and I'm, I'm gonna tell you something. Like, ladies, there's a much more practical way to deal with this. We don't have to fucking cry on Twitter and write think pieces and shit. We outnumber men. You hear me? We outnumber them. 
Listen, this is peak game. This is what I got from the women who raised me. Because those women from that generation, they didn't have fucking Twitter. They didn't have WordPress. They had 38 specials. That's what they had. They didn't have time for that bullshit. We outnumber them. Like, right now, if we wanted to send a message, we could. All we got to do is get in a big circle around all the men, like a fight club circle, and put gay men at each exit. And beat the shit out of them. We'd be like, you can catch this ass whooping, or you can catch that dick on the way out. Yes. Catch it on the way out. There was a writer for Forbes magazine that called me homophobic because I said that, um, and it made me really angry and I wanted to lash out. And then I said, sit on it, think about it, let it, let it, let it hit and see what happens. And then I was like, nah, you know, when I, when I talk about certain things, it comes from the perspective of a village, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are village people. And that's where I really, that's what I aspire to be. It's like, we take care of each other, right? Because we've gotten so far away from that. And I was talking about sexual assault because there are, you know, three men in my life who are queer men, gay men, mm -hmm. who have been my protectors my whole life. You know, my best friend, mm -hmm. my uncle, and a very good friend of mine. The, the, the people who have always said, I'll walk you to the car. Make sure you let me know when you get home. Uh, you know, I'll go get it for you. Don't go into the parking lot by yourself. Always have been gay, these three gay men. So my idea in the joke was, hey, um, if we're talking about allyship and everybody has privilege, gay men have privilege in the fact that they're men. Mm -hmm. And in the world, they have privilege over women. So I'm going to stand up for your rights to get married. I want to stand up for your rights to love and have everything you deserve. Can you stand up for my safety? Mm -hmm. And somebody said that that joke was homophobic. And it was a man that writes for Forbes magazine, right? And I'm sitting there seething, thinking, the fact that you only prioritize your situation without thinking about mine when... Women are getting sexually assaulted uh, at an alarming rate and it's still going up. And now during COVID has gotten worse was like, oh, you're blind to any, anything, any experience other than your own. And I don't want to be that. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about the things that I talk about that are uncomfortable, I want people to understand that they are not alone. And I say that a lot because I felt alone a lot when I was sexually abused I was raped. I was mistreated. A lot of things happened to me. I was unhoused. But the most traumatic part of all of those things is that I felt alone. Mm. I felt like suffocated. I can't talk about these things because I'm going to be embarrassed. And then start when I started talking about them is when I felt like I was healing. And I started to, my self-esteem started to rise and I started to be free because I'm no longer in bondage to the people who victimized me. So that feeling was so freeing that I was like, oh, I'm gonna write about this. Mm -hmm. Cause I want, I want people who've been sexually abused to know the comedian on Netflix got sexually abused and she's okay. And I see you. And it, and then when I get these emails, I feel better. Cause it's like, 
it's like being in group therapy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're yeah. like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. I, I feel you. Thank you for talking about it. It's it it's so interesting because I think you you talk about you think of yourself as a person of of a village and you're you're so community oriented, and that's such a contrast to stand up as, as an art form inherently, which is so individualistic. Yeah. Um, is that a thing that you feel like you have to push against that the nature of the form? No, you know I think it's just let me be and let me be who I am in this, and you just be who you are, and if. You want to be the cool comedian that gets the millions of dollars and hangs out with the celebrities and, you know, you're in the in crowd or whatever because you were goofy in high school and now you feel like, hey, I've arrived, you know, like um, George Clooney knows me. Mm -hmm. Like, whatever. I feel like that's cool. That's cool for you. But for me, I've taken on something different. And I'll tell you, like, Muhammad Ali is my hero. Mm. And um, I got a chance to meet Muhammad Ali and spend some time with Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali gave me advice and spoke stuff into me because what I saw Muhammad Ali do with boxing, which is also an individual sport where you go in the ring by yourself and fight for yourself, but then got out of the ring and fought for his people. I felt like that's more my jam. That's more like where I want to live in this because what's it all for? Like, what's it all for to be rich, famous and successful if people who are out there are struggling and you can help them and you don't because you don't want to step away from being one of the cool kids. Mm -hmm. So, no, I don't want to make stand up that. I just want you to let me be who I am and stand up and go focus on you. If you want to, you guys want to go, you know, go do it, go do mm -hmm. your thing, but let me do mine. Cause this is really who I am. You know, it, we talked about a little bit, but the, you know, representation is complicated. You know, mm -hmm. it could be mm -hmm. a burden. It could be an opportunity. You know, as, as, you know, as is noted, you're the first Afro-Latina comedian with a stand-up special. Knowing that, going into it, how, do you feel it as, how do you, I guess it's, I, I don't want one or the other. Do you feel it as a burden? Do you feel it as an opportunity? Is it both? How is it both? How does that inform you? How did that mm. sh shape it? How, you know, where are you with that, especially now with the, the special being out? You know, it's both. Um, let me tell you something about my comedy career. Mm -hmm. I am where I am because some people are not racist, ageist, and sexist. And they've opened the door for me. Um, identity changes, right? So I'm Afro-Indigenous, as I've been informed by the internet, that I'm not allowed to call myself Afro-Latina, which is fine. I, um, I... I'm going to always identify with my African roots. I grew up uh, I, honoring them, closer to them than a lot of these people who are now claiming this identity. Um, I've never shied away from the word Black. I've never uh, felt like I was better than Black American people. I've never felt like... I just always lived in this space where I've always known who I am because my grandmother gave me the gift of saying, this is where you come from. But I feel... Yes, that sometimes it can be a burden because what we're all imperfect and we all make mistakes and we're all evolving, hopefully, and trying to grow. And the expectation of a person for being popular, um, to be evolved or to get it all right is not only realistic, 
but it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it is, um, it is so prevalent and it's so sad because you should know better. Why? Because they're famous. You're talking about the person who lived in a dumpster, who didn't go to therapy, that is now exercising their pain through roles. Mm-hmm. Why are why should they be so evolved? Like, why do you think that I have a degree in psychology? You know, like what what makes you think that I know anything because I have 10 followers? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still a human being that's still growing. And unfortunately for me, I'm doing it somewhat under under scrutiny and that's the worst because you know you know you know what it is to be selena gomez to be have to have like your normal relationship life where you break up with your boyfriend nobody knows but the people down the street they don't see you together no more or your friends but now your life is public and for everybody to chime in on it and so for me it's like Dang, this is a lot of work. Sometimes I don't want to do it. Sometimes I, I just want to tell my jokes. That's why I don't want to do political commentary anymore. I just want to do my jokes and go home. And I want to. I want my advocacy and act- activism to live through my stand-up. Mm-hmm. And then what I do to help people behind the scenes that nobody needs to know about, so they won't be up for discussion on you know in chat rooms. And in what way is it an opportunity? It is an opportunity. Well, first of all, it it changed the way we're not living in a best Western anymore, of course. You know, I'm not living in a mansion, but my my kids are healthy and safe. Um, I get to show people that where I come from, that there is good things are possible and that, you know, little girls and little boys and little non-binary kids and queer kids and trans kids that come from my community to know that someone has a better life and that it doesn't always have to be that way. Um, you know, it creates opportunities for me to be able to fill my my mother's refrigerator when it's empty. And I couldn't do that before, you know, and send her sushi every couple of days and Postmates because mm-hmm. she loves sushi. And that gives me joy. <laughs> um, you mentioned your grandmother uh, a little. Yes. Abuela is key. I mean, many of us got raised by our grandmothers, right? So I love my grandmother. And I, I'll tell you, a lot of people of color, like Asian people love their grandparents. Black people love their grandparents, my dear. Jewish people call their grandmothers Bobby. You know, regular white people, Mima. They love their grandmothers. It's just rich white people. They lock them up. He'd be like, keep talking shit. You're going to Shady Acres, young lady. Keep fucking with me. I'm going to take your house. They'd be locking them up. They'd be like, this one's for boarding school, asshole. They fucking are hilarious. Not us, though. We ride our grandparents till the wheels fall off. We do. And we be fucking... Our old grandparents... Yo, I don't know what's worse. The home or the house of an ethnic person and for a grandparent. Grandma be on a walker, just got a hip replacement, holding a baby. <laughs> she got a babysit, cause you wanna be a hoe. They be like, ah, walking around. We be making them do shit they don't wanna do. Wait a minute, my grandma gonna make her homemade biscuits. Hold on, 
Grandma be like, I'm coming, baby. It's so fucked up. People come to the house and be like, yo, you got a skeleton in the crib? Be like, that's not a skeleton. That's the matriarch of this family. I mean, you will not be disrespecting my abuela pancha like that. And she, she clearly plays a really important role both in your life and, 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 and in your art. Um, you bring her up in all your, all your specials and all, all your comedy. Can you, can you talk about her, her influence? Yeah, my grandmother came from uh, Puerto Rico in the 50s, uh, illiterate with two children and got married and had uh, four more children from a man who abused her. Um, and so much that he punched her in the eye and made her blind in one eye. And she never ever was a victim. You know, she taught me that there are no victims, just victors. Victims are the ones who can't walk away from the situation. They can't leave the kidnapper. Mm. And so that uh, attitude that she gave me, it just, it just made me bounce back up and just keep going. And just to watch her, um, you know, she managed a building, two buildings, mm. and collected rent and didn't know how to read. But like she would say, but I know how to count. And it's like, that's just a level of, of seeing the glass is half full that is so refreshing coming from the, where I come from yeah. to see someone say, but I know how to count. And, and because I know how to count, I'm going to take care of my family and I'm going to have a job, which is just to see a woman, a black woman do that, that didn't speak English. She was like the most dynamic human being I've ever met. Yeah. Do you, do you see her in your comedy? Is, are there are there moments where you're like, that's the thing that she's not a comedian, but this is if she could articulate it this way, she would articulate it this way. Absolutely, she was very. She called herself a truth teller, mm. and she would be very bold and very confrontational at times. And everybody loved her. Mm. Um, is this is this special special? And if so, why? Or why is this special special? Well, this special is special to me because when I when they sent me the opening of my special, uh, they just showed show me the opening sequence. The first time I saw it, I cried for like an hour and a half. Um, I just kept watching it over and over and crying. Um, just to see people that look like me, sound like me, feel like me, and just in their beauty, you know, not in their struggle, just in their beauty. And... Just to see that is very special to me. If nothing else, just to see, this is a comedian. This is what she talks about. This is who she is as a comic. This is the chaos that she brings. And this is where she comes from. Yeah. It's really special to me because, you know, I know where all these white boys come from in comedy. I grew up watching them on TV. You know, I've seen every TV show. Mm -hmm. I love sitcoms, so I've seen them all. Right? I know, I know Taxi. I know uh, One Day at a Time. I know Facts of Life. Mm -hmm. Like I know all of this stuff. I go back and I still watch those old sitcoms. I'm fascinated by the sitcom. I know the lives. I know, you know, I know Green Acres. I, I, that was that one. That one came later, and I watched. I was like, oh man, the. This is uh, the original um, mm -hmm. pretty woman. You know, they're out here. This man is, you know, this with the, the rich woman, the reverse. Yeah. I know that people don't know us 
You know, they don't know us. Mm. They know us through, you know, music artists that are rich and are always constantly showing you how rich and perfect they are. They don't know us in our fiber and our how uh, complicated we are. They know us through John Leguizamo, you know, who do those, does those one person shows that really like says culturally, these are some of the things that we do, but they don't really know us. And through stand-up comedy, I feel like you got a chance to see not just me, but where I come from and where this comes from, because, mm. you know, I, I just thought it was important. It was my, that was my, uh, my uh, brothel, if you will, like Richard Pryor's brothel. When we when we watched that movie and we learned where he came from, mm. that's what that was for me. It was yeah. like this. These are the people I come from. <laughs> so now it's time for the final segment of the show. It's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but uh, okay. because it's comedy, I, I call it a laughing round. Um, do you have a favorite joke joke? Like a street joke? I, my favorite joke is a Theo Vaughn joke. Well, that... He talks about how entitled people are now and that, you know, he's like, when we were kids and we got molested, we just jump on our bikes and say, we ain't coming around here no more. <laughs> that joke is so funny to me because it's so real to my life. <laughs> Uh, is there a joke you wish you could steal? A joke that you wish that when you saw it, you're like, oh, I wish I had that joke. I wish I could have told it. I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you the a joke that I said in my special that I felt like had I not been who I was, I would have thought it was stolen. But mm-hmm. it, it's such a common joke. And when I said my father was uh, so generous, he gave us each our own mothers. Mm-hmm. Byron Bowers has said that about his father. Tiffany Haddish has said that about her father. So... Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't, I never knew that until later because I had a conversation with them about it or whatever. I talked to Byron about it. Byron was like, I think Tiffany said it too. Cause I was like, I'm always conscious of how I respect my fellow. Byron is one of my best friends. Yeah. But, uh, is there a joke I wish I would have came up with? Yes. There's a joke that, um, that Damon Wayans said one time when he was working out and it was about how, he didn't celebrate Christmas because he knew that during the times of slavery that people were giving slaves for Christmas. And he was like, and then, you know, you'd un- they'd unwrap the gifts and then he'd be like, now clean up this mess. And I was like, I, I never thought about that. Like, I was like, wow. That's actually something that's very deep to think about yeah. that, you know, and it's a, it's a really deep and a very dark joke. But I just... I, I've always thought that Damon Wayans was brilliant. Yeah. So I was like, wow, like that's a that's a joke with so many layers. Yeah. Um, more so than I think almost any comedian I've interviewed, in interviews you talk about books you've read. Like it's like a mm-hmm. big part of you. Um, can you can you name one, two, three books that you would say influenced this special? Oh, that influenced this special. Yeah, there's a book called The... Um, an African American and Latinx history of the United States, which is right here. Mm-hmm. Um, Lord of the Flies, which I reference all the time because um, I really, I, I mean, I don't know if you can say you love that book, but that book is a book that's very connected to my childhood. I read it when I was pretty young. Mm. 
And there's a book called They Were Her Property. Actually, this editor who's a friend of mine who works at um, Simon & Schuster told me about that book. And, you know, I read um, some of the stuff that I was talking about with white women. Mm -hmm. Um, It was about, you know, the role of the white woman in slavery. So I would say those would probably be the three books. Do you have a short story about an interaction with a legendary comedian living or dead? Yeah, I I got an opportunity to go to Austin and Dave Chappelle um, let me get on his stage and perform. Mm. But I think that what more importantly was we went to brunch and I had a conversation with him and we talked about wokeness and we talked about, this was prior to the closer. Um, You know, I was telling him that he, you know, his comedy resonated with a lot of white people that his audiences were really white and uh, you know and he was you know he was like hmm <laughs> but you know we had a uh you know this exchange and this conversation and uh he was really kind to me in in our conversation like he he would listen to me mm-hmm. um do you have any advice for an upcoming comedian my my advice is always go with you because you are going to eventually show up anyway Mm-hmm. So doing your best impression of what you think a comedian is, is going to always end up bad. Um, and last one, uh, do you have a joke that you thought was so funny or something you thought was so interesting that you tried and it didn't work? You tried it over and over and again, didn't work, but you'll go to your grave being like, this was good. They were wrong. Yeah, I have a joke about... Um, that you know, and they say your life flashes across uh, your your whole life flashes across before you die. Yeah. And I I had this joke that was like, I wonder who made my highlight reel. And Sam Barrell and I talked about this joke, and he gave me notes on how to. And it doesn't. It I don't know why it just doesn't. But you're laughing. I think it's yeah. just a certain type of person, like you know, because your whole life cannot possibly flash mm-hmm. across. Maybe that's it. But I'm, I'm going to continue to try to work that joke out. But it was like, I was like, I wonder who would make my highlight reel. Like, <laughs> right before I die. Is it like the the my ex-husband who traumatized me? Or was it my mom? You know, like, yeah. who makes the highlight reel? That joke. Perfect. Uh, thank you so, so much. This has been fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You've been fantastic. These are good questions. Oh. Thoughtful. That's it for another episode of Good One. Watch Fighting Words on HBO Max. Follow Ida on social media at Funny Ida. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Captain Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to Stetson hats. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 